Thank you, John. My name is Keith. I'm an alcoholic. Hi, I'm really delighted to be here. Uh, it's been a wonderful weekend. I can't tell you how much fun I've had. I really enjoyed the uh, the uh, workshop on uh, relationships yesterday. Uh, I'm always I always think of my friend Mike W., my old old buddy and prayer partner, 29 years, who always says it's relationships. And um, he always talks about Needy Jane meeting Needy Joe on AA campus. And he said it's like two ticks and no dog. <laughs> yeah. I really want to thank Lou for what he said. You know, this morning I got up and there was a note on the on the uh, uh, table next to the bed, and Julia had listed a number of things she wanted me to do in the bathroom, like. You know, clean up the mirror, do this, do that. So I really want to thank you, Lou. You really messed it up for a lot of us. And um, and being and being with Linda has just been a, a delight. And and I I hadn't spoken with Gary before, but I'm just delighted to to have met you and to to listen to you. And and I walked in early during our meeting on uh, Friday. I walked in a couple minutes late, and I went back 25 years to. I, I could have sworn Angie D lost 25 years. I just couldn't believe it. I was startled when I saw her, her lovely and wonderful daughter and what a nice job she did. And of course my beautiful wife, Julia, who is my favorite Alan on. Um, <laughs> it works best that way. So, uh, <laughs> but I'm still not going to clean up the bathroom. Uh, I mean, a guy's got to draw a line someplace, you know. Yeah, I, uh, I'm a member of the Midtown Group of Alcoholics Anonymous in Wilmington, North Carolina. We meet uh, Monday and Thursday, 7 o'clock, and uh, you're most welcome. I, I assure you, you'll be made to feel welcome if, if you come and visit us. It's a wonderful home group. We're active. There are a lot of us. There are a lot of new folks coming, and uh, we make them feel very, very much at home. And I think feeling at home it must be the key they grabbing a hold of this thing. You know, Tom talked so eloquently last night, up until the time he threw that snide remark at me. But, uh, <laughs> but I speak last, so, uh, <laughs> plus he'll have to walk home because I drove him here. <laughs> but, uh, but another thing, you know, Mike, Mike W. told me, he's telling me he had a son who, very much like my second daughter, was very, very ill and nearly died and he was very stunted for many years in his growth. And uh, he's now about 6'2", so he changed his ways. But uh, uh, somebody said something about, boy, Ed's awfully small, isn't he? And Ed said, uh, they didn't know he was there. And, and they said, oh, we're sorry, Ed. And he said, oh, that's all right. I'm only small on the outside. So uh, I, uh, the Midtown group is a wonderful group, and I really hope that if you're ever in Wilmington, you'll come and visit us. Um, you know, in Alcoholics Anonymous, we, we're told to tell a little bit about what we were like, what happened, and what we're like now. And I'm going to do that, and I'm not going to do it for long, because I know everybody wants to get out of here. Uh, I, I think what, what really nailed me to the floor in Alcoholics Anonymous is the fact that one day I belonged. And belonging was such a hard thing for me to do. I, I was born on the Ohio River, a uh, place called Martin's Ferry, and uh, I had uh, ten brothers and sisters, and... Uh, and I, I mean, a really loving family, and I didn't belong, uh, because I was outside of all of it. And I can't explain how that happens. How does that happen to a little kid? It just is it, beyond belief. Uh, I mean, my mother didn't treat me any differently than she treated anybody else. She loved us constantly. You know, if you were anywhere within reach till the day she died, you got hugged and kissed and told how much you're loved and how wonderful you are and everything. And uh, And yet, for some reason, I never heard any of that. You know, in my case, the receiver was broken. And I think it's because there was so much internal activity going on. From as far back as I can remember, I was trying to figure it out. I was trying to figure out how I could fit in. You know, what is it that I could do that would make me fit in? And uh, and so I had a lot of things going on. I had, like, imaginary friends. And um, they didn't call them DTs back then. They, they were imaginary <laughs> friends. And uh, I had, uh, uh, you know, I had something lived under my bed which wasn't friendly. And uh, and I knew what it was there for. It was waiting for me to dangle my little legs over the side of the bed and nice history. And I knew that. And um, and I knew also knew I couldn't tell anybody about it. Uh, and because um, you have to keep things like that a secret. 
And it's just astounding to me how I saw things so very, very differently. I was thinking, um, I, I want to thank the committee very much for everything they've done, and I especially want to thank them for, for arranging for Mass here yesterday. Usually I'm darting out someplace and trying to grab Mass and get back in time for the talk and things, but uh, I really appreciate that. And, and I was thinking uh, how, um, you know, I, I grew up in a home that was a very, very spiritual place, and yet none of it seemed to impact me. It was a loving place, and nothing seemed to impact me. We had a, uh, a family rosary every night. We'd get together every night and pray. Um, we didn't have a TV. Well, they were invented. I'm not that old, but uh, <laughs> you know, Tom remembers when they invented them, but I don't. And um, it's going to be a long hour, Tom. And um, and, <laughs> and uh, he's, he's my sponsor. You're supposed to kick sponsors around. That's what they're there for. So. Uh, <laughs> But uh, uh, we didn't have a TV, so what we did was we, my mother loved plays and literature and poetry, and we would act out plays in the living room, and, uh, you know, uh, uh, I I wasn't very good with Shakespeare, because I had a horrible speech impediment, and, um, but everybody acted like they understood what I was saying, and, you know, Uh, so it, it was a very, very, very wealthy place to grow up, and all I ever saw was the tremendous poverty in which we lived. Uh, you know, we didn't own things, we didn't have a car, you know. You could throw a cat through the wall in a house, it was, uh, you know, the, it was a constant breeze in the house. And, uh, but that's all I could ever see. And, uh, I could see my father cutting out cardboard to put in his shoes, and I was ashamed. And, uh, you know, why was I ashamed? They were his shoes. But I was ashamed, and I could see my mother in her torn dresses, and which she would try to mend. And I was ashamed. So everything was done at me, you know. Even as a little kid, I was a self-absorbed schmuck. And uh, and I really thought that I could get past all this if I were good. And so I really tried hard to be good. And I wasn't very good at being good. And uh, so I decided to be bad. So uh, so I decided to become a hoodlum. And um, I uh, I wish I had the courage to hit somebody with something here. But, uh, you know, I started my own gang in high school. Uh, I got uh, five other discontents, and uh, we, we started a, game, a gang, and we were trying to think of a name, and all the good names were used up. And um, so we were studying history, and we were studying the great composer Wolfgang Mozart, so we became Mozart's Wolfgang. And, uh, <laughs> and, uh, and uh, we didn't have any money, so we couldn't buy black leather jackets, which was the in thing then, and for hoodlums, so we bought black nylon jackets. And... Uh, <laughs> And then we planned and pulled our first job. I'll never forget it. Um, we knocked off the confectionery store near the high school. Uh, well, actually, what we did was we stole a watermelon from outside on a stand. Is what we did. And it was really daring. And we, uh, we we took it across the tracks. Actually, we had a hearse. We had a 1938 Cadillac LaSalle hearse. We threw the watermelon in the hearse and we sped away. And uh, there was no shooting or anything. And... Uh, we went across the tracks and we ate the watermelon. And, and, uh, and you know, during the course of the day, all six of us snuck over and paid the old man for the watermelon. And uh, so the next day, he set us all down. We'd go over there to smoke cigarettes before class. And he set us all down and he said, boys, give it up. You're not going to make it. It's hoodlums. But I, I did get myself into a lot of trouble. And... Um, it was mischievous stuff, you know, like, I was a guy, I made book that, uh, you remember in biology class when you used to, used to, uh, see how long a frog could stay underwater before he had to come up and breathe? Remember that? And, uh, you know, they breathe through their skin, but eventually they have to come up and, I guess, replenish the supply or something. And, and I made book that my frog could stay down longer than anybody else's frog. And I filled it up with mercury, and I won. And, um, now don't worry, all you. Yeah, animal rights people. Uh, that frog was a lot better off than the one next week that we dissected. But uh, and you know, if you pull the mercury out of out of the frog, he's as good as he was when he started. And uh, and so you know, uh, Sister Mary Regina didn't think it was amusing, and uh, she was a biology teacher, and and so she told me that I had to come in the next day to clean up the uh, lab. 
and before class started. And, and it was no mean feat because we, we lived about 20 miles away. It was a central Catholic high school. And so I had to get up early in the morning and hitchhike. And, uh, and I got down there and I'm cleaning up the lab. And, and remember Adam, the rubber man? Um, Adam was a guy, you know, every morning they'd take poor Adam's parts out and you had to name them. You know, heart, lung, liver, you know. And, uh, and I was cleaning Adam up and his thought struck me. So I went down to the home ec lab downstairs and I mixed up some yellow food dye and uh, filled Adam's bladder and uh, <laughs> carefully put it back in Adam. And uh, Sister Mary Regina's going through the, you know, right after breakfast, she's going through all these parts. And uh, she poured out, and everybody said, bladder, and all this yellow stuff ran down her hand into her, you know, they always wore those big habits, you know. And she was so cool, she said, Mr. Lewis, I'd like to see you after class, please. <laughs> That's the kind of stuff. I was suspended, uh, uh, I think it was like 23 times in high school. And uh, and one time, uh, our pastor called us. Monsignor Close called me, and he said, he's called me Potato. And uh, and he said, Potato, are you all right? And I said, yeah, I'm fine, Father. And he said, oh, he said, I was worried. He said, I thought maybe you were sick. I said, why is that? He said, well, he said, we had a school board meeting, and your name never came up. And... Uh, <laughs> I um, I had already begun drinking by now. I had one drinking experience uh, during prior to this time. So, uh, and that's what I blame it on. And uh, I was five years old, and uh, I was at home. I didn't go out a lot when I was five. And uh, and uh, my uh, my father was watching myself and my brother Dumb Denny, and um, and my mom was out. She was either to bingo or having a baby or something. And. Uh, and we were sitting around a table, and I guess Dad just thought it would be kind of funny. So he uh, uh, he got us each a beer. And there was rarely alcohol around our house, because both of my parents had parents who qualified. And um, so there was rarely alcohol around our house. And I guess Dad thought it would just be sort of funny to see what happened. And he gave us each a beer, and nothing happened to me. I drank my beer, and nothing happened. And uh, Denny, on the other hand, had a spiritual awakening. He was uh, rolling around under the table, and he was singing Mary Had a Little Lamb and other drinking songs. And... Uh, <laughs> My father wrestled in the ground and took his clothes off and put his jammies on and took them up in his bed, you know, and he was singing and having the best time. And uh, and he said, son, he said, get ready for bed. I said, okay, dad. And he said, don't tell your mother about this. I said, I won't. He said, I'll take you to movies this weekend. Well, you know, they don't negotiate a lot with you when you're five. So uh, I was game, but Denny wasn't hearing it. He was having the time of his life. And, and I remember little Denny stood up in his crib and he urinated on the floor. And... Uh, I remember thinking, you know, there's a kid who's powerless over alcohol and his wife has to come in And I always like to tell about poor Danny because he just never made it. Uh, it's really the saddest story. Uh, uh, you know, a guy would have started like that and he grew up and did odd things. Uh, he uh, went to Ohio University and uh, and the strange thing is he had one major. Yeah, yeah. And I'll tell you, it was even worse. He graduated in four years. I never heard of anybody graduating in four years. And, and he went to one graduate school at Ohio U, and he graduated first in his class. And uh, and, and he was offered like eight jobs, and he took one. Yeah. And he worked for this large international corporation for over 30 years, and, and he retired a, a senior vice president in this huge corporation. And the strangest thing of all is he had one wife. Now, here's a guy who had the world in the palm of his hands when he was four years old, and he just let it slip through his fingers. You know? <laughs> he was a natural, and he just... <laughs> Very sad. Um, you know, I, I, um, I, I have to tell about my friend, uh, Sister Victoria. Uh, I was looking at my, uh, my annual uh, not long ago, and Sister Victoria had signed Friends at Last love Sister Victoria and uh, Sister Victoria was the little nun who ran the library and she was an odd little duck she used to uh, I guess penguin you'd say but uh, it, she used to run around uh, saying things like every boy's a prince and every girl's a princess because we have a father who's a king it's pretty strange isn't it and uh, and so we call each other Prince Keith and Princess Mary and things like that and uh, and whenever you were in trouble you had to serve detention in a library with Sister Victoria and I spent a lot of time with Sister Victoria. And, and what we had to do was we had to make rosary beads, okay? And they gave you wire and pliers and all this stuff. And, and then they'd take the rosary beads and they'd send them to the missions all around the world. And, um, you know, your average rosary bead, you know, has ten beads in each decade. And um, 
I reinvented the rosary. I uh, <laughs> all mine had eleven beads in each decade, and um, and you know, in four years there were hundreds of mutant rosary beads all over the world, and. Uh, <laughs> And she used to put me behind a magazine rack. She said I was a prince, but I was contagious. And um, and uh, and just before I left, you know, you can't leave without them knowing. You know, it would have been like a waste of four years. So uh, so I went to her and I said, Sister, you know what I've been doing the last four years? And she said, Yes, you sly little prince. She said, You've been putting beads and all extra beads in all the rosaries, and I know why. And I remember thinking, I hope she tells me, because I have my foggiest notion why I do these things. And um, and uh, she said, you know, people all over the world are praying extra prayers, and God's going to give you all the credit. <laughs> Don't you just hate people like that? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he, uh, it was just awful. And uh, and then she did something that terrified me. She took my hand in her hands, and she looked me deep in the eyes. You know, like spiritual people do. They do a lot of that in AA. You know, when I came to AA, I... They, I discovered they were mostly eye people. I was a shoe guy. They're eye people. And I like to look at shoes. But um, she looked me in the eye and she said, you know, you're a very special child of God. And one day uh, you're going to go around the world and tell God's children how very much he loves them. And I was terrified. Absolutely terrified. And, you know, there's something about that woman that stayed with me uh, for years. And, and in 1993, I was over at Moore Regional Hospital talking to a drunk and I was driving back across Fort Bragg and I was overwhelmed with this tremendous sadness. And I pulled off the road and I just prayed for a little while and I got back and drove home and, and I said to my lovely wife, Julia, I said, I think Sister Victoria died today. Out of nowhere. I hadn't seen her since I left high school. And, uh, and you know, I was up at um, the Music City Roundup last month and uh, a woman walked up to me and uh, said, I thought you might like this. And it was a notice of Sister Victoria Shaw's death at 101 years of age in Louisville, Kentucky in 1993. Now, I don't know the exact date that that overcame me, but it, it was about that time. And so it may have been that day. But I think for some reason, uh, I was joined to her. She used to, she told me she put a medal on her beads and, uh, medal of St. Jude, which is a patron saint of lost causes. And, uh, she said whenever she got to that medal, she said a special prayer for me. And she promised me she'd always do that. And so I think I was united. Uh, and it was amazing to me because I wasn't united to anything. I was a totally isolated human being. And that's what I think the definition of alcoholism is for me. It, it, it's a totally isolated human being. And all I could ever do is spend time trying to act the way I thought I was supposed to act. So somehow you would think I fit, even though I knew I didn't. You know, and I didn't know what to do after high school, so I got out and I, you know, and I joined the military. You know, in those days, all the guys went to the military, you know, um, either that or, uh, you know, you, you went to college. And um, and then you went to the military. And uh, I wasn't going to college, that was for sure. But uh, uh, I uh, joined, uh, I went over and I, I took an inventory. It was my first inventory I ever took in my life. And uh, I took a look at myself. And uh, I was five feet one inches tall and I weighed 113 pounds. And Whatever else I was, I was a born killer. So <laughs> I went over to Wheeling, West Virginia, and joined the Marine Corps. And um, and it, you know, and I wasn't yet 18, so my parents had to sign for me, and I failed to share it with them. And uh, the, the recruiter showed up with uh, with uh, the papers, and my mother about had a heart attack. The poor thing, she cried. And and uh, my father said to me, "Son, are you sure you want to do this?" I said, "Dad, I've been thinking about this a long time, an hour and a half. I thought about it." And um, and so they signed, and uh, I'll never forget, all night my mother cried. I could hear him in the next room, and she kept saying, Scott, they'll kill him. And my father kept saying, don't worry, Pat, they won't take him. So, <laughs> with that vote of confidence, uh, next morning we took a taxi cab over to, to the Greyhound bus station in Wheeling, West Virginia, and I took a bus to Pittsburgh. Okay, Now, that's the second longest trip I'd ever been on, 60 miles. And I'm this terrified kid who knew nothing about anything, and worst of all, couldn't ask. And uh, it was a very bad year, and they took you if you had a pulse. So that afternoon, I was sworn into the Marine Corps, and uh, and uh, they they said you can take up to 90 days to leave. And I figured if I don't leave now, I may change my mind. So uh, I decided to leave, and uh, and and so three guys from uh, the area had joined 
And they were, you know, they, they understood the big picture, you know, the kind. They know what's going on, they know all about women, know all about God, know all about life and all that stuff. And I was the only one that didn't know anything. So my job was to act like I knew. And I had this trick. I, I did things, I would watch what you did. And I did them so quickly after you did them, you'd think we were doing them together. And that's how I got along in life. And uh, so these guys said, uh, hey kid, we're going to go over and have a, uh, a sandwich and a few beers for the train leaves. And I said, that's just what I was thinking. And um, <laughs> so I went over with them and uh, and I went into this bar. I don't know if any of you have been in a bar in Pittsburgh. I know some of you have. And uh, and um, and I never saw anything like it. It was this place that was like filled with real men. You know, and they all had real women with them. And real women are women who hang around with real men. And uh, guys like me used to get what was left. And uh, and the bartender came over. He's a real man. He said, "What do you want?" And my first thought was, "Oh my God, a quiz!" And um, that's what I thought life was. You know, when you least expected it, somebody was going to say, "Take out a blank sheet of paper and put your name in the upper left-hand corner." And then they'd ask a bunch of questions. And I studied all the time. I just never studied the right stuff. And um, and I did not answer a question like that, so I did what I always did. I watched what they did, and they ordered a beer, and I did too. And he came back, and he asked the same question, and I did the same thing. They ordered a beer, so I did too. He came back the third time, and I ordered first. I'd become a leader between the second and third drink. <laughs> I'd become a leader of man. And, and uh, not only that, all that fear and doubt and everything was just gone. I remember standing up, and it seemed that the floor was about six feet, four inches below me. It probably wasn't, but it seemed that way. And uh, the mind had been filled with all this clutter and everything was all of a sudden crystal clear. And I looked around, and I remember thinking, it's so simple, why didn't I see it before? And I looked around the room, and uh, my heart broke. The room was filled with a bunch of pathetic, sniveling little men. <laughs> and all of them had women with them who were looking at me with their hungry eyes. You know? <laughs> and... Uh, and, uh, and, you know, and I just went from table to table explaining life to these people. It was incredible. I mean, I told them about God and everything. You know, and it was, it was fascinating. It was like infused knowledge, you know. You know, prior to that drink, uh, I didn't know anything about the Marine Corps, except they took a certain number of men to South Carolina and drowned them in a swamp. That's the only thing I knew about the Marine Corps. And, uh, and then all of a sudden, I knew everything about the Marine Corps. It was just amazing to me. And I was explaining it to these poor Cretans. And, uh, and, uh, and, you know, it came time to leave, and, uh, and it was about 11 o'clock at night, I guess, and, and it seemed to me, now this may not be entirely accurate, it just seemed to me that people were saying, please don't go. We've just discovered you. And, and I, I had to go and make the world safe for democracy, and, uh, and we left, and, uh, we got on a, we got on a train. Now, I assume we got on a train, because I woke up on a train. And to this day, I think that's a reasonable assumption. And, um, and um, you know, it's, it's pure logic. You know, it really is. It's, pure. it's like the guy who, who made a clone of himself. You hear about that? He made a clone of himself. And he took it up on his 10-story building, you know. And he took all the clothes off the clone, so it was completely naked. And he threw it off the building. And it fell 10 stories and died. And they had a big, big to-do in court. They didn't know whether it was murder Suicide, or just an obscene clone fall. No. Okay. <laughs> oh yeah. But, uh, just logic, and uh, and uh, and you know, I woke up on that train, and I was in a Pullman coach that the Marine Corps had kindly provided for me, and someone had wet the floor I was lying on. And, uh, yeah, whoever it was, they had wet me, too. To this day, I don't know who did that, but uh, I changed my clothes, and I got off the train. I'm 100, 300 miles from home. It's three times as far as I'd ever been. And uh, the guy said to me, what are you going to do, kid? I said, I'm going to go find a beer. So the very next morning, I was drinking, and I drank all the way down to a little place called Yamasee, South Carolina. If you hadn't been there, I wouldn't go. And... Um, <laughs> And I fell off the train. I don't know what happened. Somebody moved the bottom step. But I fell across the next set of railroad tracks. And there was a very rude man there. They had sent to greet us. And, um, and he was hurling obscenities at myself and the other men who went down there to die for their country. And, and I got up and tried to explain to this Cretan that he could get along with us a lot better if he treated us with some respect. And he never seemed to grasp what it was I was trying to say. They say you can learn from every experience. And what I learned from that experience is you can do a lot of push-ups drunk. That's what I learned from that experience. And, uh, you know, in case you're interested, 
You probably aren't, but you can do push-ups and throw up at the same time, too. So. And, and the next morning, um, we were put on a bus and taken to Paris Island, and I was welcomed to the Marine Corps. And I must tell you, I loved everything about it. I loved everything about it from the very beginning. You know, the drill instructors didn't frighten me. I'd been with the nuns for 12 years. Uh, you know, the nuns have been blamed for more stuff than the Nazis, if you listen in AA, you know. And uh, my friend Ernie, the attorney, uh, sent me a cartoon some years ago. And it was a picture of two nuns, and one of them's talking to one nun's talking to the other nun, and she said, "I just got a letter from a former student of mine who has forgiven me for ruining her life." You know, a, I bet her former student was in AA. Um, I too came to Alcoholics Anonymous religiously, anti-religious, and uh, but that was because I had gotten spiritually ill. Um, I um, I loved the Marine Corps. I loved everything about it, and. and uh, the good thing about being small in the Marine Corps is that they don't think you can do anything. And, you know, I could do 200 push-ups before I went into the Marine Corps. So I'd always act like it was hard, but I always do more than everybody else and, and all that stuff. And uh, and I won Dress Blues Award and Outstanding Man's Award and all this stuff. off of, You could win off of Paris Island and meritorious promotion. Every promotion I got was meritorious. And uh, I was the youngest NCO in the Marine Corps. And my goal was to become the youngest officer in the Marine Corps. And I worked hard and I got an appointment to go to Officer's Candidate School. The one drawback, and I was going to spend a hundred years in the Marine Corps if they keep me. And the and, and I wondered why. I mean, for years I wondered why I liked the Marine Corps. Nobody else seemed to. And uh, everybody likes it after they get out, but not not a whole lot of people like it when they're in. And I wondered why. And I, I finally figured it out. I was doing an inventory one time, my spot check in uh, annual house cleaning. And what I realized was the Marine Corps is the very first place I ever was where I knew exactly what was expected of me. And because they they have a very good idea what they expect, and they're not a bit shy about sharing it with you. And um, and, and I suddenly realized that what I had done my whole life is I've always guessed at life, and I, that's why I think I took to Alcoholics Anonymous. Nobody who knew me thought I would, because I was a rebellious schmuck, you know, just really a frightened idiot is what I was. But uh, but I took to it because my whole life, what I've always wanted was guidance and direction, and I always acted like I wouldn't take it, but I secretly always wanted it. And that's what being lost is all about, I think. And and I came in and I, I ran into people who were willing to give me guidance and willing to give me direction. And uh, and I think that's why I, I've stuck since the day I walked in here. But um, but at any rate, uh, I won't, you know, bore you with all my drinking and stuff, but, but what happened was uh, I drank for another 12 years. And in that 12 years, I lost everything that ever meant anything to me. Um, I... Um, I lost that career in the Marine Corps. Uh, what I've discovered is that uh, what I do is, what, as an alcoholic, is I'm very enthusiastic about life. Even as a kid, as frightened as I was, I was always enthusiastic about the next thing I was going to learn. And then gradually or not so gradually, I begin to violate every principle associated with that way of life. And then I leave that way of life uh, and then blame them for what happened to me. And I did it in the Marine Corps. I violated every principle that you associated with being a good Marine, up to and including leading a patrol in combat in a blackout. Um, I uh, drank on duty. I did all the things that I never would have done. I'd never jeopardized that career. And I did them. And I did them because it was time to do them. I didn't realize it then, but, but the next 12 years, I spent all my time and efforts trying to get back to Pittsburgh, to that night. That's magic night in that bar in Pittsburgh when all of a sudden this misfit fit. This guy who belonged nowhere belonged. This guy who knew nothing knew everything. That's what I was trying to, to reclaim. And I spent the next 12 years trying to do that. And I paid everything I had. I, I paid with a, a wife and two daughters. I paid with my dignity, my respect. I paid with the careers. I paid with all kinds of things. One day, May the 13th, 1973, I'm living in what passed for a place in the Skid Row section of Washington, D.C. And I woke up and it was just over. There's no other way to explain it. Um, Jerry explained it so well uh, that I really was moved with his explanation of the end. It was just over. And uh, and I look back and, and, and I think what alcoholism demanded of me was uh, was the uh, whatever it took to get back to Pittsburgh. You know, one day I walked in the NCO club and I ordered a drink and they charged me uh, 70 cents in my career. And I thought that was about right. And then one day I went for a bottle of gin or something and uh, they said, well, it would be your wife and your two daughters. And I thought, well, that's about right. 
And then uh, one day for a bottle of wine or something, it was my life. And I thought that was about right. And I went into that bathroom with one thought in mind. I had a medicine cabinet full of drugs. I worked in hospitals, as did my estranged wife. And, and back then, you could take whatever you wanted. Not a medicine cabinet full of drugs. And I never took any of them. I know some of you think it's the saddest story you ever heard, but I just <laughs> never took them. I had everything, you name it, just a medicine cabinet full. And I decided I'd take them all. My thought was if God made anything better in Scotch, he kept it for himself. That, that was my thought. And, um, and I, uh, I don't know to this day whether I took it or began to take it or didn't take it. What I know is that, that I screamed out loud. Uh, not just in my head, but out loud. I'm 29 years old and at least it'll be over. And a woman spoke to me. It was really strange because I was not wild about women this time. I had an ex-wife who was trying to take everything I had, which was nothing. And, um, and, uh, and a woman spoke to me and said, it's just starting. And it startled me. I mean, she, she spoke to me as clearly as I'm speaking to you, but without a Pittsburgh accent. And, um, and she said, uh, and, and I, I re- suddenly realized that, that my estranged wife had given me a phone number and said, I can't help you. Maybe these people can. And I went out and I pulled the drawer out and everything fell on the floor and I was crawling around on the floor as desperate as a man can be, and found this number, and I called. I had no idea. It was just a number. No idea. And it turned out to be a little treatment center. Uh, and a lot of people don't like treatment centers, and, which is strange, because we don't have opinion on outside things. But uh, <laughs> uh, I'm awfully glad it was there, because there was a woman on the other end of the phone had a British accent. And for some reason, I trusted British accents, which makes no sense, because we had to kick them out of here. And... Um, <laughs> She had this British accent. Her name was Dorothy. And she knew how to talk to me because she was an alcoholic. And she calmed me down and we talked and she got my phone number. And, uh, cause I know now she knew I was suicidal and, and, uh, she would be able to trace me with my phone number. And, um, and I hung up the phone after she, they agreed to take me three days hence. And she asked a strange question. Um, do you need help stopping? And I thought it was a strange question. I mean, who would want to, I mean, like Tom was saying last night, who would want to drink after what I had been through? Who would ever want to drink again? No one in their right mind would want to drink again. And uh, I hung up the phone and I looked and there was almost a full bottle of scotch on a draining board. And I ran over and I began to pour it out. Now, I didn't know Alcoholics Anonymous existed like Tom and like a number of other people. I did not know Alcoholics Anonymous existed. But I knew something. And that was that the stuff in that bottle owned me. I didn't know the words powerless over alcohol. But I knew I was powerless over alcohol. And I knew I would never pour that bottle out. And I stepped back and threw it as hard as I could into the sink. And it burst. And if the bottle had bounced, you'd have a different speaker. Because you see, I'm powerless over alcohol. And um, what that means to me is if I ever catch up to the drink with my name on it, I'll drink it. Now, you know, I don't have alcoholism. I have alcoholism. And I'm every bit as alcoholic today as I was 30 years ago. Every bit as alcoholic. I'm a lot more comfortable, which is dangerous for an alcoholic. But but I'm every bit as alcoholic. And uh, that's a hard concept to get. You know, so many people, so many of the men that I work with have this concept that what they have is a bad habit. You know, and the further away you are from a bad habit, the less apt you are to do it again. Alcoholism is different than that. Alcoholism is a live animal that dwells in me. If I ever catch up to the drink with my name on it, I'll drink it. And the reason I'll drink it is because I'm powerless over it. You know, early on, that thing was about three minutes ahead of me. You know, I could, from time to time, I could smell it. I could actually taste it. And, uh, but you know, as a result of the program and sponsorship and the steps and working with others, I get that thing pushed further and further away from me. There have been times, you know, when I've slacked off. When I was, I love this, seeking balance. You know, I've got a life's more than meetings, you know, which is true. It's also sponsorship is working with others. It's going to institutions. Yeah. Now, if you're staying sober on meetings, uh, something's going to run up behind you and smack you in the head pretty soon. Uh, but uh, but, you know, I was seeking balance, which for a young guy usually means sex. And, uh, you know, and um, so from time to time I go seeking balance and uh, wasn't terribly successful at seeking balance, but uh but at any rate, uh, I, uh, uh, and what would happen is I'd start getting nervous. I remember the first bad time was around 18 months. And what I'd do is I, I was 
going to make everything right. And I was going to do it by my own will. See, I, I'm in the hospital and I'm working. I'm, I'm working late. I'm doing this. I'm doing access. I'm going to make up for all the damage I did to these people. Right? So I'm in there working late. And, I'm, and, and every morning I was going to go to a meeting. And every evening I found a reason not to. And uh, I didn't know I was on dangerous ground. I just didn't know. I failed to share it with my sponsor. And uh, and then I started like going to the place I used to drink, just to have a sandwich and drink Coca-Cola. And what I didn't realize was that I was catching up to that drink. If I ever catch up to the drink with my name on it, I'll drink it because I'm utterly powerless over it. And one day I was at the hospital and I looked, the meeting was at 8.30. It's a midtown group in Washington, D.C. And, and I looked at my watch and it said uh, 8, uh, it was 8 o'clock. I said, well, you better get going. You're going to make the meeting. Well, I'll do this one more thing. So I did one more karyotype and uh, took some photographs with a microscope. And, and I looked and I said, 8.30. I said, oh, gee, it's too late. Well, I'll go tomorrow. And that's what the routine had been for almost two weeks. And, um, and I got my car. I left. I got my car. I was going to go home. And a gas main had blown up in Washington, D.C., and so they rerouted us, all the traffic, and they routed me right past the church that the Midtown group met in. And some idiot had left early, and there was a parking space right in front of the church. And uh, <laughs> even I couldn't say no to that. And uh, so I parked the car, I went in. The only seat left, of course, is on the front row. You know, and all my fellow group members are looking at me like they didn't know who I was. And, uh, and I sat down, and a woman was speaking, and uh, 8.30 came. I'd been there 15 minutes, and I looked at my watch, and I said, doesn't this woman know that meeting ends in an hour? And uh, and then she went on to tell a story of what happened to her when she was sober about 18 months, as she drifted away from meeting, and that she ended up drunk. And uh, she was celebrating three years that night, but she would be celebrating four and a half years had she not drifted away from meetings at 18. And I looked, and there was a guy who was sober one day less than me, Mike, and Mike was a chef, and uh, Mike and I were just staring at each other, because Mike had been doing exactly the same thing. Only Mike's trick was a little different. Mike was buying beer and watching his girlfriend drink it. Um, yeah. And we took her for coffee, and we kept that poor woman up to one o'clock in the morning. And uh, the next day, we both really got to work. So what I know is that there's a drink out there with my name on it, and I'll catch up to it. Okay? Because the only thing that keeps an alcoholic from drinking is a miracle. And you're the miracle. And if I cut you out of my life, I've got to drink again. Not I might. I will. There's a hundred percent guarantee that I will drink again if I stop doing what I've been doing for the last 30 years. Sometimes well, sometimes not so well, but I've always been doing it. You know, I um, I was uh, taken to uh, this little... Tr- I drove this little treatment. So it was about three days later, and I heard those things. I heard music. I remember uh, it was wonderful. I went to the bank. I had to try to borrow some money on my car. And I went to the bank and, and I put a nickel on a parking meter outside the bank. That's how long ago it was. And Beethoven's Fifth Symphony started playing out of the parking meter. And I stood there and listened to it till my time was up. And uh, I put another nickel in. I, I didn't have to do that because they were playing it in the bank too. It was amazing to me. And, uh, you know, the next few days they played it everywhere. Uh, I unplugged my radio and it still played. It was miraculous. Um, and... Um, but anyway, it was time, and, and I, uh, I got in this little thing that passed for a car, and, and I, I drove. It was 30 miles away, and it took me five hours. I had what they used to call the running fits. Now they call them anxiety attacks. And, uh, but then there were the running fits, and, and I get out of the car, and I, I was sick, and, 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 you know, I'd shake, and I'd tremble, and I'd run up and down the road, and then I'd throw up, and then i wet my pants, and, and I'm changing my pants outside a car on Route 29 outside of Washington, D.C., and my Phi Theta Kappa key fell out. And uh, and I wonder what happened to all this potential. And what I know is that potential dissolves in alcohol. That's what I know, okay? And um, and uh, and I got to that place, and I was there about a half an hour, and they put me on a bus, and they took me to a place I didn't know existed, a place called Alcoholics Anonymous. And, uh, and a friend of Dick's... Uh, uh, was was speaking that night as a retired colonel, a man named Don. And I'll never forget as long as I live. was on a second step. And the only thing I remember about that meeting was in the preamble they used a word. The, the word was fellowship. And uh, And when they said the word fellowship, something warm kind of poured over me. And I came to realize that the horror I lived was total isolation. I belonged in nothing. I was a member of the United States Marine Corps, and I didn't belong there. 
I remember we we got a a very good uh, deal on the uh, inspector general's inspection and a lieutenant uh, who's now retired as a general. I've helped a lot of people up the ladder in my day, but uh, he uh, he came to me and said uh, when we were alone he would uh, he would you know talk to me like a friend and although I never called him anything but lieutenant or sir. And he said, Louis, he said, uh, I really want to thank you. He said, uh, you're the finest, one of the finest Marines I know. And I said to him, well, sir, I just enjoy working for you. He said, look, he said, don't kid yourself or me. He said, you do twice as much as you have to just so you don't have to work for anybody. And that's precisely how I handled life. I didn't belong anywhere. And um, and uh, I met a man who was a greeter. And uh, they called him a greeter. He was an eye guy. Look you in the eye, you know, and... Uh, he made me a promise. He said, you know, son, you keep coming here. He said, you never have to drink again. And I knew he didn't know me. Because, you know, two years before that, my second daughter was born and was very near death. There was no, I was drunk when she was born, of course, and I took her mother to the hospital. I was drunk. I demanded they take care of her and all that crazy <coughs> stuff and embarrassed and everything. And as soon as the baby was born, she weighed less than two pounds. So I did the only thing I knew how to do, and that was I ran home. And I got in bed. And my wife called me in tears and said, please, please come. I need you. And I was so angry I couldn't see straight. And I drove back to the hospital. And, and for the next three days, I hid out in a room across the hall from the neonatal nursery. And the chief resident was a girl named Mary Kate Davitt. And Dr. Davitt had gone to high school with me. And she was then Mary Kate Whitty. And she's now passed away, unfortunately. But... But she came to me and she said, you know, we've got a brand new experimental machine. She said, I don't think it'll make any difference, but we'd like to put your little girl on it. And uh, and I said, do whatever you think best. And I said, what, is, what does my wife think? And she said, look. And I looked and my wife's walking up and down the hall with a thousand yard stare in a state of shock. And so they put it on a machine and I hid out across the hall for three days and I watched this little thing struggle for every breath. And I watched, I was there watching the night that my wife went in and baptized our little angel because they didn't think she'd live through the night. And I ran down to the chapel and I hadn't been in that chapel in a long time. You know, Georgetown University is a Catholic university and they have a chapel in a hospital. And, and I went in and I got on my knees and I begged God to save my little girl. I said, if you'll let her live, I'll do anything. If you'll let her live, I'll stop drinking. And I was drunk in 12 hours. And I never want to forget that I drank when I thought drinking would kill my little girl. Here's a man I never saw before. He didn't even know my name. And he's making a preposterous claim that if you keep coming here, you never have to drink again. And then he introduced me to an old lady who took me in and got me a half a cup of coffee and sat next to me and began to pat me. And she said to me, you know, Sonny, you keep coming here, you never have to be alone again. And I looked at that old lady and burst into tears. So I really didn't know that what I was was alone. And you know something? You've kept the first two promises you ever made to me. I've never had to drink again and I've never had to be alone again. I've chosen to be alone, but I've never had to be. And that's the gift of Alcoholics Anonymous. And you introduced me to a way of life. And I was insane. And it doesn't matter how crazy you are. Insanity's got nothing to do with getting sober. Insanity's got nothing to do with getting sober. It looks better. Uh, <laughs> you know, and you're invited to more places. But, uh, but it's got nothing to do with getting well. Being smart got nothing to do with getting well. Now, there's no premium on stupidity. But to being smart has gotten to do with getting... It's action. It's, it's action. It's getting into action. And they got me into action at the very beginning. I was in my first institution when I was uh, less than a week out of that treatment center. Went to Howard Pavilion for the criminally insane. And the guy said to me, Come on, kid, we're going over to talk to these drunks. I said, They're not drunk, they're crazy. He said, Well, they're drunks. And uh, and I said, well, I don't know what to say. They said, well, don't say anything. You probably don't know much yet. I said, well, what do I do? They said, well, take cigarettes. They liked the guy with cigarettes. So I, I took cigarettes, and they liked me guys. And, um, you know, I was sober two months. I was in my first penitentiary. I was in Howard Pavilion. I mean, I was in uh, Lorton Reformatory. Tough place, tough place. And they would, they would strip search us, and they would pat us down hard because they weren't wild about the fact that we were there. We disrupted their evenings the guards and things, and uh, so they'd pat us down. So then they told us, you can't bring big books in here. You can't bring a used book in here. So all the groups started donating brand new books, so we'd take them in and leave them. And, uh, you know, you can't beat a drunk. And um, 
We had a hard time getting people to go to Lorton until they found out what they were doing, and every drunk in town wanted to. They can't do that to us. So. Uh, <laughs> but I, I just been blessed. You know, I ran into a woman out in New Mexico two years ago, and uh, she had gotten sober in January 1973. And we all hung around a, a, a lady who was just magnificent, a lady named Peggy M. We all loved Peggy because she was just on fire with Alcoholics Anonymous, and she was really good with we young people. You know, nine of us came in. A woman named Jackie came in in January, and then the last woman was a woman named Alma, who got sober in December of 1973. And I was talking to Jackie two years ago. You know, two years ago, all nine of us were celebrating 28 years of sobriety in Alcoholics Anonymous. It wasn't because we were smarter than the rest of them or any of the rest of it. Something happened. I fell in love with the idea of Alcoholics Anonymous, and I surrounded myself with people who made me do what I didn't want to do. I was one of the book talks about the depressed type, you know, and uh, and I didn't want to do a lot of things. Uh, a lot of times I wouldn't go home after work because I was afraid if I went home I wouldn't make wouldn't be able to go to a meeting. So I'd go and sit in my car outside the meeting until it started. Um, they called me one time and said, um, look, there's some lady speaking over in Virginia. She's sober 27 years. We're going to pick you up. And I said, I don't want to hear some broad sober 27 years. Whatever. They said, just be outside. They wouldn't come in my house. So uh, they didn't like the neighborhood much either. But uh, they would drive up, and I'd jump in the car, and away we'd go. And they took me over, and this woman's name was Lib S. Lib now lives in Wilmington, and uh, it's my privilege to be with her. A few years ago, I took her to dinner and told her the story about the time I didn't want to go listen to some old broad speak because she was sober 27 years. And I said, Lib, I'm now sober 27 years. And I was wrong. You're not old when you're sober 27 years. <laughs> you know, uh, I, I've made a lot of mistakes uh, in Alcoholics Anonymous. I've done a lot of things the wrong way. Uh, but, you know, my second sponsor is a guy named Sandy. And uh, Sandy had told me one time, he said, you know, Keith, he said, there comes a time in your sobriety, when your motives for doing what you're doing is even more important than what you do. And he said, check your motives. And I didn't understand that. Now I think I begin to understand it. it, it the book tells me that the, the one thing I have to watch out for is dishonesty. And, and you know, when you get to a certain point and you can make it look good on the outside and you're looking respectable and all the rest of it, the way I'm dishonest is with my motives. And so I constantly check my motives. When I get with Tom... Uh, Tom makes me meet him at a restaurant uh, up in Lumberton so he can drive his motorcycle over there and uh, always wonder whether he's going to show up but uh, <laughs> he drives his gold wing over and I drive up and uh, we go, sit at the Cracker Barrel and we always give the lady a big tip because we're good for three or four hours anyway and, and what I try to tell Tom is how I'm living my life and I go through every area of my life. I, I, I have written job descriptions for myself in every area of my life. And I talk about being a husband. And I talk about being a father. Talk about being a sponsor. And we go through all the guys I sponsor. And I don't tell them big secrets and that sort of thing. But what I tell them is what the advice I've given them. And then he gives me input on that. I think sponsorship may be the most spiritual thing I do with the exception of marriage. So sponsorship is so spiritual that I never go it alone in spiritual matters. And I get advice from a man who's been down the road further than me. And, um, and, and, but most of all, what I worry about is what my motives are. Because the way I'm dishonest today is in motive. It's not in anything else. Um, and that's what I think kills people. I was, um, I was sober about three months and I got a letter, uh, and I was asked to come and study in, in, uh, in France. Now, th- this is beyond belief for a guy like me, uh, you know, I mean, three months before this, I, I was suicidal and couldn't leave the dive I was living in. Now I'm asked to go to Paris to study with probably the world's greatest cytologist. His name was Jerome Lejeune. He passed away just a couple of years ago. He was also Pope John Paul's uh, Athesian. He was a recognized expert in ethics. And, uh, and he invited me to come and study with him. And I just couldn't believe it, to study banding techniques and things like that. And, and I knew, I had figured out AA by this time. I was sober about 90 days, and I had a pretty good, I had a good handle on this thing. I, I figured out sponsorship, okay? Sponsors are people who find out what you really want to do and tell you you can't do it. And, um, and, uh, so, uh, uh, I, uh, I 
wasn't going to get my sponsor to satisfaction, and uh, but I decided I'd do it anyway, and uh, and so I went to my sponsor and I uh, I said to him, uh, look at this, and I showed him the letter, and he just beamed. He said, "This is wonderful." I said, "You mean I can go?" He said, "You have to go." He said, "This isn't about you." He said, "This is about Alcoholics Anonymous." He said, "The best thing you could do is crap your pants over there on Skid Row. This is Alcoholics Anonymous." <laughs> and, uh, and then he told me something that if you're kind of new, I, I hope you'll go away with this. I really do. I really hope you'll go away with this. He said to me, "He said, look at me." And when my mother wanted really meant it, she'd say, "Look at me." And uh, and so I looked at him, and he said, uh, "Remember this." You can do anything in Alcoholics Anonymous if you prepare properly. And I've come to understand that life and sobriety is about preparation. He said, we've got between three and four months to get you ready to go to France and study. And he said, you will be ready. And you know, I was. I had, I had names and phone numbers of AA members in France. And, uh, and I, I, I had the location of the meeting at the American church on, on the river and, uh, and when I was there, I, I, you know, New Year's, New Year's Eve, 1974, I'm glad I was sitting over in the corner of the plane by myself, because I couldn't keep from crying as my plane landed in Orly Airport, a free man, walking the streets of Paris, a free man. And that night I made myself stay up till midnight, which was really late, at Washington, D.C. time. And I sat on the side of my bed. And I finished my rosary and I hosted my friends with a bottle of Perrier water in Alcoholics Anonymous. A free man. And I slept my customary three hours and I was up early in the morning walking the streets of Paris, watching them put the meat out in the, the pastries and a free man. And it just happened that my sponsor came through town when I was there. Just a strange thing. And, uh, <laughs> and we spent a week together. We traveled down and saw the great cathedrals. We just did all of these things together in 30 years and it's still an emotional situation for me I don't think you ever forget when you begin to experience freedom you know you have to be locked in this prison of alcoholism to know what it is to not be in this prison of alcoholism I loved when Tom talks about his time in prison and how he got free in prison as a result of Tom and I've been able and fortunate enough to spend a lot of time in prison and I heard a man's Fifth step, we'd been down for 30 some years. And, and we got, to, after it was over, I, the, the, uh, correctional officer allowed us to go out on this little porch area alone, just him. And, uh, and he was to, to, told him to, you know, to read that part in the big book and where it says that we contemplate the first five proposals and have we been thorough. And I looked and I saw his, he didn't have his big book, so I took it out there to him. I didn't want to invade his time, but I took it out there to him and it, this guy's in tears. He'd been down for 30-some years, and he said, I'm free. I'm free. And that's what Alcoholics Anonymous is about. And if you haven't experienced that yet, find a sponsor. You know, get into the steps. Get into service. You know, one of the things that's happened, I, you know, I'm, I'm not critical about anything. I don't have an opinion on anything. And I mean that. I really don't. Uh, because if I do, I have to change it later. And so... Uh, <laughs> Now that means I'm wrong. God knows you don't want to be wrong. But, but if I made an observation, it's that, is that, and it was certainly true in my case, I thought I needed to get me better. And I didn't need to get me better. I don't have the power to get me better. It says clearly in the book that I have no power. Oh, Buck Doyle, this sponsor said to me one time, he said, what's that book say about power? Uh, he said, you're a bright kid. He said, you probably even took a lot of mathematics, which isn't true, but I'd let a buck think that if he wanted to. And um, <laughs> he said, uh, "He said, if God has all power, how much is left for you? <laughs> I said, none. He said, boy, you're a genius. That's what you are. You're a genius. <laughs> I have no power. I can't change me. I can't change me. What I can do is join. And you know, every I've done a lot of things. You know, when I left France, I went to Rome and I spent a couple of weeks in a monastery. And I want to tell you, it was wonderful. It really was wonderful. But that isn't where I could find God. Now, God was there. That isn't where I could find God. That isn't where I could find myself. And I spent all my life trying to define myself. 
you know, in this business of affirmation, you know, you hear so much about affirmation. I remember when I was drinking, my my now ex-wife went to a psychologist, and he asked me to come in. I knew it was coming, you know. And I also knew they were probably having an affair. And uh, all alcoholics' wives go to psychiatrists, they're having an affair. And um, and so we went in, and he asked me, he said, uh, he said, uh, he said, your wife says you drink quite a bit. I said, I drink a lot. And he said, well, how much do you drink? And I said, well, I probably drink at least half a fifth a day. That was about half of what I drank. But I figured if you don't pay for it, it doesn't count. And uh, half of what I drank belonged to other people. And uh, most of them didn't even know it. But uh, so then I asked him that, that hard question. I said, do you think I'm an uh, alcoholic? And he said, no, certainly not. He said, you're too young and you're too bright. Yeah. And then he said, he said, your problem is you have a poor self-image. And he turned to my wife and he says, you know, part of it's your fault because you tear him down. And I'm thinking, I don't know what we're paying this guy, but he's worth every dime. I can tell you that. <laughs> so he gave me my very own list of affirmations. You know, it says Keith's affirmations. And my job was to stand in front of the mirror every morning and affirm myself. Right? And my wife was to stand next to me to try to undo some of the damage she had done. And um, and that, I was so excited to find out I wasn't an alcoholic, I got very drunk. And uh, and I was affirming myself all alone the next morning. And uh, I'll never forget that. I'm standing there looking at those yellow bloodshot eyes, you know. And I said, it said, Keith, today you're a winner. <laughs> today you're a wonderful husband. Today you're a wonderful husband. Yeah. Today you're a loving father. You know, I got halfway, it was two pages. I got halfway through the first page. I said, today you're full of crap. That's what you are. <laughs> I may have been an alcoholic, but I wasn't stupid. You know, I violated virtually every principle associated with being a human being. My problem wasn't lack of affirmation. You know, that would be like putting a, a new roof on a lousy house. You know, what I had to do was dig out the foundation and start all over. And you know where I got affirmed? You know where I got affirmed? I remember saying to my sponsor early on, I really angry, I was angry about everything. And, uh, and I said to him, when will I stop being a newcomer? <laughs> and he said, well, when you stop getting mad every time somebody says newcomer. I mean, he always had these flip answers, you know. <laughs> And so the next week we're going to the same meeting and I said to him, I said, I hope Bill, Bill's okay. He said, who's Bill? I said, well, he was a new guy last week. I said, every morning when I ask God to keep me sober and keep you sober, I ask him to keep Bill sober too. And he looked at me and smiled and said, you're no longer a newcomer. You know, when I'm affirmed, I'm not affirmed because of anything I think of me. I'm affirmed because I look in the eyes of somebody I'm working with and they look back. And what they see is a sober man who's loved by God and in love with God and in love with a program called Alcoholics Anonymous. That's what affirmation is. It's not what I think of me. I asked old John Powell. He's not an AA, he's not an AA member, but he's a great friend of Alcoholics Anonymous. And down at the International in 1980, down in New Orleans, I, I asked him. He was living in a room next to me. And John the Indian was living on the other side, two of the brightest men I ever met in my life. One of them had a string of degrees and the other couldn't read. He just knew more about life than anybody I knew. And uh, and I asked Father John, I said, what's this spiritual crap? And he said, because I was really frustrated with trying to do it right. It didn't seem to be working. And he said, Keith, he said, the spiritual life's very simple. And he says, you're particularly fortunate because you're a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. He said, the spiritual life is simply a matter of three things. He said, number one, he said, we get to know who we are. And he said, the first five steps are made. So you get to know who you are. He said, and then six, seven, eight, and nine are there so you can fully accept who you are. And he said, then 10, 11, and 12 are there so you can forget who you are. Yeah. And he said, you know, that's just life. And it is, you know. And the only time I can forget who I am is when I'm in service to God or another human being. I wanted to, if I could, just finish with, uh, I, I, I've been talking about my father a lot the last couple of years. My father passed away two years ago. And uh, my father, I couldn't make amends to. I, I so related to, to your story about driving around and driving around. I drive from Washington, D.C. to Ohio. It's 300 miles to make amends to my father. I'd sit down at the table and have a cup of coffee with him, and I'd be so angry I'd get up and leave and drive back to Washington, D.C. I'd just storm out. And my father said to my mother one day, he said, you know, I like that boy, but I worry about him. He drives a long way for a cup of coffee. And... Uh, <laughs> 
it was that lack of insight that made me angry. And uh, I mean, here's a guy who just he just spent his life working, raising 11 of his own children, and a few kids who had no place else to go, with cardboard in his shoes, in a wool suit that he came to Paris Island to watch me graduate from boot camp in. And I remember one time I was in church and I saw a cockroach walk out of the pocket of his wool suit. And I hated him. I hated him. And, uh, you know, and I, Sandy was my sponsor and Sandy kept saying, I'd say, I can't make this amends. He said, I think you're real close, Keith. He said, I think it's just a pray a little bit more. I think you'll be there. And, uh, and then, you know, uh, what I decided to do was I decided to do what my higher power had told me to do all along. I decided to begin to honor my father. What I'd done is dishonored him. I saw everything wrong he ever did. I saw every shameful, poverty-ridden thing. What I didn't see was the dignity of the man who believed in God, who put his children in God's hands every day. He told me one time and during my agnostic stage of life, uh, I was a sophomore, which means wise, fool, and Greek. And um, <laughs> and uh, and he, I, I said to him, I didn't believe in God. And he said, well, I pray every day. I said, that's ridiculous. And he said, well, he said, I don't know. He said, uh, I have 11 children. He said, all of them are physically well. And most of them are mentally sane. <laughs> so, so he had this abiding faith. And, and uh, so what I did was I decided to do what the big, big book told me to do. And I began to honor him. I began to honor he and my mother. I just honored him. I no longer had an opinion contrary to his. I learned a great Al-Anon saying, well, I never looked at it that way before. Which was true. I never looked at it the way he looked at it. And, uh, and then something began to happen to us. And then uh, one day at a little beach house, and my father and mother had never seen the ocean. You know, when you don't have a car, you don't have any money, you don't go on a lot of vacations. And uh, they'd never seen the ocean, and I invited them down. They stayed in my house. I named the house CC Does It. And, uh, and my mother would always say, some of your friends from New Jersey stopped by and had some iced tea. People <laughs> would stop by all the time and have tea with them. She'd, they'd say, are you a friend of Bill Wilson? No, but my son's a personal friend of Bill Wilson. She didn't know he had died. And, um, uh, but they were down there, and one day I, I was traveling a lot, and I stopped by to see my father, and, and I was sitting there just honoring him. And, uh, and he said to me, he said, remember the first day you went to work? I said, no, I don't think I do, Dad. And he said, yeah, and he said, I took you to lunch. He said, you remember that? I said, no, I don't. I'm sorry, I don't. And he said, well, yeah, he said, you were 12 years old. And he said, I took you to Louie's hot dog stand. Do you remember what you had? And I said, well, I'll go out on a limb here, Dad. Did I have a hot dog? <laughs> and, um, and he said, oh, yeah, you loon. He said, you remember what you drank? And I said, I probably drank orange pop. I always drank orange pop. He said, not that day. He said, that day you drank root beer because I drank root beer. And I think you thought men who worked drank root beer. He said, I explained to you what it was like to, to do a good day's work for a good day's pay. This man was telling his 12-year-old son how to grow up. And of course I couldn't remember that because when you build a case against somebody, you gotta forget all the good stuff. And he said, I took you down to the bus stop and, and I, I said, do you want me to come with you on the first day? I had to go to Bridgeport and to this bowling alley I worked in. And he, I said, no thanks, Dad, I'll do it myself. He said, I watched you till you were out of sight. And he said, you never look back. And he said, from that day on, I could never do anything for you. He said, you bought your own clothes, you put yourself through high school, you, you know, he said, you didn't let me help you go to college. All your brothers and sisters let me help them go to college. And I realized that I had robbed my father what he did best. And that's to be a father. And a week later, I stopped by and borrowed a thousand dollars from him. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I put it in the bank and a month later, I paid him back. And, uh, from then on, we were like that. And, uh, I'll tell you what kind of a man he was. He was, uh, uh, just a couple months before he died, I went up in October, and uh, and uh, I just wanted to be with him. And, and I went up, and we were talking, and uh, he'd gotten out the baseball pictures, and he show, had shown Julia and myself, and he was it had this one picture of this championship baseball team. And I said, Dad, I heard you were a pretty good ball player. He said, I was okay. And I said, I heard you were better than okay. I said, I heard you were all state. He said, well, I was. And I said, your senior year? He said, well, actually, all four years. <laughs> And I said, I heard you had a major league contract. He said, well, I had a few offers. He said, but you know, I had a job in a mill, and that was sure. And Mom and Dad were both sick, and they needed me home. And I said, oh, why didn't you ever tell us you were that good? And he said, well, he said, you and Danny worked so hard to be good ballplayers that I didn't want to do anything that might discourage you. And I said, where did you learn to think like that? I said, I've been going to meetings for 28 years to try to learn to think like that.
And for him it was natural. And then before I left, I went in his room and he was sitting in his chair and I sat down next to him and I took his hand and said, Dad, is there anything we need to say to that we haven't said? And he said, No, son. I know you love me and you know I love you. And I kissed him on the cheek and I started to leave. He said, There is one thing. And I said, What's that? He said, I want to thank you for everything you've done for so many people, especially the people in our family. And I stopped and looked. I'd never looked before. My family is absolutely riddled with AA members and NA members and Al-Anon members. Now, I didn't do it. I didn't do it. I was just first. And if that drunk Uncle Keith can get sober, anybody can. If he can change, anybody can change. And I was a before and after. And uh, and then I uh, left and we went back in December. And uh, he was in the very last stages. And uh, we went into his room, Julia and myself, and my brother Danny and a number of kids and we went in his room and I held my father's hand and I whispered in his ear it was okay to go and be with his wife and his son Terry and we prayed to Hail Mary which was always his favorite prayer and we prayed the Lord's Prayer and when we said Amen my father squeezed my hand and slipped into eternity and I left that room and I said to Julia I'm not supposed to live like this I'm supposed to be down the street trying to drink up enough courage to come here. I am not supposed to live like this. But of course I am. I'm supposed to live like this because I have a higher power named God. And I have friends like you. I have a sponsor. I've worked the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous to the best of my ability. And I try to do what little service I can. I'm living the way God would have always had me live. And that is as an active member. Of Alcoholics Anonymous. I wanted to know God. And I went and got a degree in theology. And I knew about God. I learned to know God. Because I knew you. And I'm profoundly grateful. That you introduced me to God. Thank you.